Let's pray. Father, as we now settle our hearts before you and gather in this place, it so reminds me of just a big living room with friends and family members over who've gathered for the purpose of getting to know our Heavenly Father a little bit better, getting instructions from your Spirit, receiving fellowship, encouragement before we go back out into a world that largely has no clue about who you are or your love for them. And so, Lord, I pray that you might recharge our spiritual batteries, that we might have the God-given energy to represent you before this world in a way that is fitting for your character. So, Lord, we gather tonight for this Bible study. Open up our minds, enable us to understand and our hearts to rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. We saw in uh, chapter 19 Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the donkey in verse 28. He sends his disciples out. They find a colt tied. They put Jesus on it, and he makes his way into Jerusalem. An author of Days Gone By, G.K. Chesterton, wrote a classic poem. He was an author, poet, fine Christian. He wrote a poem called The Donkey, and kind of about this event from a donkey's perspective. It's a cute little poem. I'm locating it. (laughs) When fishes flew and forests walked, when figs grew upon a thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cries, with ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody of all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, with ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb, but I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet, when there were shouts about my ears and there were palms before my feet. The perspective from the donkey of Jesus being on his back walking into Jerusalem, of all the animals chosen, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus sat upon the colt, the foal of a donkey, and rode into Jerusalem. I'll tell you what, a donkey must have been exhilarated had he only known. And according to Chesterton's poem, as if he did know, just the exhilaration, I had my hour. When I heard those shouts and there were palms before my feet. What an honor. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, and we made slight mention of it last time, it was a special day. God keeps his appointments. He's right on time. He doesn't do things haphazardly. He doesn't sort of keep his promises. He keeps his promises, period. And whenever I study passages like this, I walk away with my heart just exuberant that we serve a detailed God, and it causes me to trust all the more. The date was April 6th, 32 A.D. It was Passover time, a few days before when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. There was a prophecy in the book of Daniel. And it seems, by reading our text here in Luke, that Jesus is holding the nation accountable for knowing that date. There are certain things, there are certain forms of ignorance for which God will hold people accountable for. This is one. In Daniel chapter 9, there is a detailed prophecy about the Messiah, the Prince. Oh, around verse 24, 25, 26, 27. As the angel tells Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, 
There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And then the following verses describe the prince that will come and make a covenant with Israel for a week. Seventy weeks. The Hebrew word for weeks is Shebuim, which simply means a period of seven. Could be seven anything. Seven days, seven years. Uh, we call ten years a decade. Uh, they would call seven years Shebuim or Shebuah, a week. The Revised Standard Version of the Old Testament correctly translates it. Seventy weeks of years are determined for Jerusalem and for your holy people to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, break in, bring in reconciliation for iniquity, and all the things that are listed in Daniel 9. Seventy weeks of years. We know that the Jews used the term week generically. Sometimes they used it referring to days. Sometimes they used it referring to years. Case in point, the captivity was 70 years because God was judging them on their failure to keep the Sabbath law. And we've recalled that to you. Six years, you plow the fields. The seventh is a Sabbath year. You take the whole year off and do nothing. You rest for a year. So six and one was a period of seven years or a week. Israel failed to do that for 490 years. Thus, there were 70 years where the land did not rest. Hence, they went into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. Second Chronicles tells us that the land may enjoy her Sabbaths. 70 years. Now, if you take Daniel's prophecy... It's interesting because it says, from the going forth of a certain commandment until the Messiah, the prince, will be 62 weeks of years, 483 years. It's divided into three periods, 49 years, 62 years, and then one week, seven years. So 70 years total, 490 years, 483 years would be 62 weeks. My memory serves me correctly. Now, the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is given back in the book of Nehemiah by Artaxerxes, Longimanus, who allowed the people to go back to the land to rebuild the city. Incidentally, guess how many years it took to rebuild the walls and the streets? 49 years. If you follow the date given... When Artaxerxes Longimanus gave the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which was March 14th, 445 B.C. in our calendar, and you start counting, you should be able to come to the time when the Messiah, the Prince, will come into Jerusalem. There's a guy who wrote a book on this. Uh, listen, it's beyond me when it comes to all these calculations, but a guy, if you really want to do the research, Sir Robert Anderson had his work verified by the British Royal Observatory. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince, where all the mathematical calculations are written and verified as he researched this, and he was knighted in England. He worked for Scotland Yard. He figured that 483 years which is 62 prophetic weeks, 62 weeks of years, would be 173,880 days, exactly. 173,880 days. So from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which is March 14th, 445 B.C., and you count 173,880 days, theoretically... That's when the Messiah should come, and after that coming, he should be cut off, karat in Hebrew, to be cut off for a covenant, but not for himself, the scripture says. It's a wild prophecy. It's a detailed prophecy. Now, just a word of warning. Some of you are going to go home, and you're going to calculate this out. You're going to come back leaving your paper. I calculated it. You're wrong. 
It's not 173,880 days, you'll say. It turns out to be 176,295 days. What are you telling the people these false reports for? Well, that's because there's an error in your calculations. You have probably calculated using the Julian calendar, the solar year, which is 365 and a third days. All of the prophetic years are given in 360-day years, which is the lunar calendar. That's the Jewish calendar, and before that, the Babylonian and so forth. It's the calendar of the ancients. So if you're to count on a 360-day year, your relationship to the moon rather than the sun, you'll come up with 173,880 days. So begin counting. Pull off the pages of the calendar, starting with, with March 14th, 445 B.C., And when you end at 173,880 days, you will get exactly to April 6th, 32 AD, the day when Jesus said to his disciples, find me a donkey. The owner will say this, you say the Lord has need of him, you bring him to me, I'm going to sit on him. And he comes into Jerusalem and the shouts that he is the Messiah. It's the first and only time Jesus allowed himself to be received by the Jewish nation publicly as their Messiah. Why? Because it was according to schedule. This is what he means then when he says in verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Isn't that wild? I am holding you accountable because you don't know this day, the time of your visitation. What on earth is he talking about? He's referring to Daniel 9. It was given to the Jewish nation through the prophet Daniel while he was in Babylon. The angel gave it to him. He passed it on. And all of the ancient rabbis who comment, you can research this on your own if you like, the ancient rabbis commenting on Daniel 9 saw that as a measurement for Messiah's coming. And even some of the great Orthodox Jewish leaders, 50 years before Jesus came on the scene, in calculating Daniel, said the Messiah must come within the next 50 years. And he did. He came into Jerusalem 173,880 days, April 6, 32 AD, counting back from the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. There then is an ignorance for which God holds this nation accountable for. They had the scriptures. They had the prophecies. They witnessed his life for three and a half years, and yet they rejected him. He came into his own, and his own received him not. I love prophecy. I love it because it shows what kind of a God we have. And I used to use what I just shared with you, Daniel's prophecy, before I even got into the ministry when I was working in the hospitals. And I was working around a lot of skeptical, scientific, and sometimes pseudo-scientific people. Oh, the Bible, it's a bunch of wives' tales. Oh, you know, a bunch of people got together. Really, did they? Let me share some interesting facts and figures with you. And it was great to just watch them be astonished at how detailed God was. But here Jesus holds them accountable and responsible and he weeps over the city. And then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to him. Now, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he is facing growing opposition. We've followed it in the Gospel of Luke. It's been mounting for some time. And I think the key issue here is they're jealous. 
You know, jealousy is an ugly, ugly thing. It has destroyed relationships, partnerships, nations, churches. It rears its ugly head and rips apart the warmth of fellowship. And here you have a group of leaders who were pinned against the wall, but their real concern is the crowds were following Jesus. He was getting all of the attention. The rope of control was slipping through their fingers. And they're jealous, and they're looking for a way to trap him, but they've got something against him. There's crowds all around, attentive, listening, who believe he's the Messiah, so they have to watch their P's and Q's right. In this chapter, I would call this chapter the, the day of questions. Eleven questions are asked in this chapter, mostly by Jesus' enemies, a couple by Jesus himself. Questions that go back and forth as they're trying to test Jesus. Now, I love questions. I have people come sometimes and say, listen, I know you're busy, but I want to ask you, hey, I'm not too busy. I love questions. Most of them I can't answer, but we can talk about it. But every now and then there are People who come and the questions are not honest. They're meant to trap. They're leading you along. There's an ulterior motive. I don't like those kind of questions. And you can spot them when they're there. These were not honest questions. These men were not honest men. They simply wanted to trap Jesus. They were looking for him to say something that he might falter in his speech, especially something blasphemous, to give them a reason to stone Jesus. They wanted to do away with him. By the way, keep in mind, the opposition that Jesus gets is not from the secular press, not from Hollywood. It's from religious people. Jesus' biggest enemies were religious people. I'm not a religious person. I don't get along really well with religious people. Say, wait a minute, you're a pastor. You've got to be religious. No, I'm not. There's only one religion that God ever deposited toward men, and that was Judaism, and that was done away with when the new covenant came that was predicted in the book of Jeremiah. And when Jesus came and died for the sins of the world, the way was made possible for everyone. Religion was obliterated. Religion is what man must do to attain favor with God. Relationship is what God has done for you. Past tense, period. There's a big difference between religion and relationship. And Jesus' biggest enemies were the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes. In fact, they're all mentioned in this chapter. All of Jesus' enemies sort of come together here. You've got Pharisees, scribes, you've got elders, which is the Sanhedrin, basically. And then you've got the Sadducees. They're all mentioned in this chapter. It happened. On one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him, and they spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe in him? If we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, and they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And this was not a long conversation. It would help to get a little background on who these religious elite were. The Pharisees, first of all, and the Sanhedrin. We have uh, scribes. These were people who in the Old Testament had a noble position. Ezra was a scribe. They would write and expound on the written Old Testament to the Jewish people. Because when the Jews went into captivity, they had no temple. They had no ability to make animal sacrifices. So with no ritual sacrificial system, the only thing that was left is read the Bible and comment on it. In the synagogue, get the people in touch with the laws of God. It started out really well. After a while, it disintegrated. 
into a position that was just, it was sort of a money-making position, period. Their hearts really weren't in it. And the scribes at the time of uh, Jesus were hired by the elite, the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling elders of the Jews. And uh, uh, they were, in fact, your NIV, if you have one, I think will um, uh, sometimes translate it lawyers. But don't think of it lawyers in a modern term. It's just, it's not the same as it was in the Old Testament. But Jesus, many of his enemies were Pharisees. And Pharisees came, uh, a lot of times we think, oh, Pharisees, what a bunch of crooks. They were great guys at first. They started out as being good folks. They came from the captivity. When the Jews came back from 70 years, it was like a spanking to them. It's like, okay, uncle, all right, we're going to obey you now. Whatever it takes, we're going to do. We're going to be so separate unto God, we're not going to let the captivity happen again. And so a group arose called the Pharisees, or the parashim, the separated ones, totally separated and devoted to God. But as time went on, again, they disintegrated. By the way, the Pharisees are the forefathers of what today are called Hasidic Jews. In fact, in the Seleucid territories, the Pharisees were called the Hasidim. These were the righteous ones, the holy ones, the separated ones. But by the time of Jesus, they were corrupt. Why? Well, they believed in the Old Testament, but they had their own law called the oral law, traditions that were passed on from generation to generation. Example. They took and codified the law into 613 commandments, saying that each law corresponds to an anatomical part. They said there are 613 sinews in the body, hence God gave man 613 commandments. But 365 of them were negative, while only 248 were positive. It was a negative religion. When it came to the Sabbath, they searched the scriptures and found 39 prohibitions, things you can't do on the Sabbath. To that, they added 31 of their own. So they were ladening people down. So the Sabbath, you had to really work hard just to rest. (laughs) They had come a long way from the intent of God. And they become one of the greatest enemies of Jesus Christ. So they come. That's really who we're speaking about. Chief priests, the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him, and they asked him this question, among a few other questions. They said, who gave you this authority? Or by by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave this authority to you? There's something that people noticed about Jesus. He was a man of authority. He was different. It's noted a couple times in your New Testaments. Jesus was so refreshing. You know that the ancient scribes, the ancient rabbis would never speak on their own authority. What I mean by that is they would always say, now, Rabbi so-and-so said, or it is quoted by this great scholar here, but, and they would always hide behind it. They would never say, I've read the Bible, and this is what it says. But Jesus did And that's one of the things they noticed about him. He was not like the scribes. He spoke with authority. And so they come to him and they say, where'd you get this authority? Who gave it to you? Now they meant his whole life and his teachings and his miracles, but principally they were speaking of him going into the temple and stopping the sacrifices. The whole Jewish economy rested upon the sacrifice of animals for the sins of Israel. Jesus throws the tables over, whips them out. Where'd you get this authority? Who gave it to you? You'd expect a question like that. They want to know, you know, where'd you come from? Where are your credentials? Now, what they expected, here was the typical answer. A normal Jewish rabbi would say, Oh, Rabbi so-and-so has conferred this great honor upon me. I've been his disciple and his student, and he has ordained me. And he has given me permission to teach in the temple courts. That's what they expected. They always looked for some man or institution conferring some right upon them. I love Jesus' answer. They asked him a question. He goes, you know, I've got a question for you. Tell me about John the Baptist. You see, they had always been jealous of John the Baptist. 
They never listened to John the Baptist when he came in authority. So he takes him back to the beginning of his own ministry, which really began with John the Baptist. His baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? Now Jesus had them trapped. Because if they say, well, came from God, he'll say, really, he came from God? Why didn't you guys follow John the Baptist and get baptized and repent of your sins? If they were to say, oh, it didn't come from God, he was on his own authority, he made it up, it was from men. Uh, all the people that were around Jesus not only loved Jesus, but loved John the Baptist. He had a loyal following, and a riot would ensue. So they played dumb. They were, but they played it up. <laughs> so we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now he's going to start speaking some parables to them. He began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. They beat him also, treated him shamefully, sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent a third. They wounded him also and cast him out. And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not, or God forbid. He looked at them and said, What then is this that is written, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. Jesus is speaking this parable to the people, but he is referring to the leaders that he just had a confrontation with. By the way, it seems that this is the last word that he has to the religious elite. He has no more words for them. He has deposited a complete, full-orbed testimony for them, and he has nothing more to say to them. He is silent now. It's interesting. God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. He will seek to get through to your heart. He'll knock on the door of your heart. But he will also respond to a person's choice to harden his heart. And if you harden it enough, he will respect your choice and quit knocking. And so we see Jesus later on. He'll stand before Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas will ask him a whole bunch of questions. Jesus will be silent. Jesus will stand before Pilate, ask him questions. Jesus will be silent. He's done with them, and he is withdrawing himself from them. And now he tells the people uh, this parable about a vineyard, which the people would sit and go, oh, yeah, I can get into this. And the people were people of the land. If you go to Israel with us, we'll show you some of the vineyards. And Israel is famous for its terraced hillsides and its olive trees and vineyards planted all over the land. And so he's endearing himself to the people using a common illustration. A certain man planted a vineyard. Now, this was not only a nice little story, but the leaders especially, and some of the people who knew the scriptures would have said, you know, I, I know what he's talking about. I know what he means by this. Because there was a familiar story in the Old Testament, very similar to this. Let's turn to it. Isaiah chapter 5. Just so we don't have to guess and make up our own little uh, meanings is what this is. We don't need to make them up. It's here for us. Isaiah chapter 5. Now let me sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones, planted it with choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. He made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, tell me, or let me tell you, excuse me, what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. There will be uh, come up briars and thorns and so forth. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, weeping. This is a prediction before the captivity. Israel was the vineyard that failed to give God fruit. What did God do? Sent the Babylonians. What did they do? They tore the walls of Jerusalem down. They burned it with fire, and they took them captive. Now Jesus is bringing that familiar story of their history into a modern context as if to say, it's happening all over again. It's happening again. But he adds a few more details to this story. He said, a guy at a vineyard. We know that the vineyard owner is God. But he sent servants. And each time the owner of the vineyard sent servants to those who were the keepers of the vineyard, instead of receiving them, they killed them, they stoned them, they treated them shamefully. What is that a picture of? The prophets. Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you which kill the prophets and stone all those that are sent unto you. Peter said to the people of Jerusalem, to the religious elite, which one of the prophets did your fathers not kill? Isaiah, they took a huge wooden saw and chopped his body in half. Jeremiah, they took and put him in a slimy pit. Micah, they slapped him with the back of the hand. Elijah, they ran him out of town. Same with Amos. Every prophet of God they treated shamefully. Finally, the owner said, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect him. Who's that? It's very obvious who it is. It's the son of God, Jesus. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. Stop right there for a minute. Jesus knew what was coming, didn't he? He's predicting his death. Did his death take him off guard? As Hugh Schoenfield wrote some years ago, a book called The Passover Plot, which says it was all a plot uh, uh, by Jesus, you know, the Last Supper and stuff, but he got too close too soon, made a mistake, they took away his life. Some people say that the cross really was a mistake. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew his future, and he was walking right into it. He predicted the cross even before it happened. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those vine dressers. And here's the clincher. And give the vineyard to others. Now this is when they rose up. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Because they suspected. He's speaking about Isaiah 5. He's speaking a parable against us. No way. The idea that the vineyard could go to Gentiles was their fear. Did it go to Gentiles? It sure did. 70 AD, the walls were destroyed again. The city was again burned with fire by the Romans. And Jesus is saying, your history is cyclic. It's in a cycle. It's going to happen all over again. And he looked at them. Those are the leaders now. He's speaking to the people. They say, certainly not. What then is that which is written, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. Now Jesus changes his analogy. He speaks about a vineyard. All of a sudden he's talking about a stone. But it's all part of the same analogy. He's quoting a psalm, Psalm 118. 
A psalm that we read a few, well, last chapter. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the people say what? Hosanna. Save now. It comes right out of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a messianic psalm. And that's why the scribes and the Pharisees said to Jesus, tell your disciples to button it up. It's when Jesus said the very stones would cry out if they held their peace. So, quoting from the same psalm, he asked them a question. What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? And this is one of the favorite scriptures that the early church used to show how Jesus fulfilled the plan of God in being crucified, rising from the dead, coming to the nation of Israel and being rejected by them. In Acts chapter 4, um, boy, I wish I could remember. Um, Peter said, you by your wicked hands have crucified and slain. This is the stone which was set at naught by you builders and has become the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone. They used that several times. Peter used that in his epistle, his letter. The cornerstone, there's a couple interpretations, a couple spins on this. A, the cornerstone was the large, massive stone at the corner base of the temple. Whenever you'd build a building, the cornerstone was the key factor. You'd lay it down, and you'd take your cues from the cornerstone. The stability and the symmetry of the rest of the structure depended on where you placed that cornerstone. Was it level? Was it chiseled right? Were the measurements accurate? And so everything would be built on that cornerstone, that, that base stone. Other translations call it capstone, the stone on top. And probably that is, is what it's referring to. It was the predominant stone. Now there's a story. We don't know how true it is, but it is a story that comes to us from the time of the building of the temple. It was a story that said as they were quarrying the stone for the temple... They were fashioning it and then moving all of the stones to the temple mount to align them and put them in order. That they had made the cornerstone, they, the capstone, they had shipped it to the temple mount and it got there and they looked at their papers and they said, I don't know what, what this is for and they just kind of pushed it off to the side and it took several years for the temple to be built, over 40, about 37 to 40 some, depending on who you believe. And... Uh, by the time it was done, the people at the site sent a message back to the quarry, where is the capstone, the chief cornerstone? They said, that has been sent to you a long time ago. They said, no, it's not around. We can't find it. And so they looked around, and there in the Kidron Valley, covered by debris, by bushes, the stone was set at naught by the builders, seen and deemed as unimportant, and that was the chief cornerstone the necessary stone to finish it off. We know how true that story is. It's a story that comes to us from Judaism, but certainly Jesus Christ was the capstone and he was rejected by the nation as a whole. Now Jesus finishes off the analogy, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Basically, those are your choices. You can humble yourself, and you can fall upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. You can say, I am a sinner, and I look to you for forgiveness. A broken spirit and a contrite heart the Lord will not despise. Or you can harden your heart, and that stone in judgment will eventually fall on you, and you will be decimated. There's no hope. It'll grind you to powder. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? It really bugged him woke him up, and nobody could interpret it except Daniel. Daniel came to him and said, I know what you dreamed. Don't even have to tell me. This is what you dreamed. Last night you were troubled about your kingdom. You were troubled about what would happen, and in your dream you saw this huge image. Head was made out of gold. Chest, arms, silver. Stomach and thighs of bronze. Legs of iron. Feet of iron and clay. Nebuchadnezzar going, yeah, yeah, it's exactly what I saw. But it's not all you saw, Neb. As you were looking at that image, suddenly a stone not cut with human hands 
came out of the heavens and struck the image in the feet, and it destroyed the entire image. It crumbled to dust. And that little stone grew up and filled the whole earth. He went right on, Daniel. What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. It's a succession of world empires. You are the head of gold. You are the world emperor. After you will come an inferior kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire. After you, the Roman Empire, a Greek Empire, and after that, the Roman Empire. There will be a succession of empires. In the final chapter of history, there will be a conglomeration of nations, ten of them, ten kings that are set apart, but at the end of days, when those nations come together and coalesce, then the God of heaven will set up his kingdom after destroying all of those nations. It'll be a kingdom that will never end. That's exactly what it means. God has shown you, Nebuchadnezzar, what will happen in the last days. Nebuchadnezzar went, wow. The text doesn't say that, but I'm sure he did. <laughs> He's just blown away. This kid was so accurate. Describing not only what he saw, but what it meant. What was that stone? It was the Messiah coming and setting up his kingdom. It's uh, Revelation chapter 19. The judgment and the setting up of the kingdom after the nations are judged. So whoever falls on this stone will be broken. On whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The chief priests were angry. They sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken uh, this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies, listen to this, who pretended to be righteous. I think in every congregation of people, there are people who pretend to be righteous. There are weeds. There are thorns among God's plants, tares among the wheat. They like to act righteous. They send clever notes about hair and tattoos. <laughs> it's a front. It's the 365 negative compared to the few positive. They were spies. They pretended to be righteous in order that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him. You know, what kind of a person is it like this? who comes to listen to something Jesus might say wrong. Instead of all the things Jesus said right, he never said anything wrong. But they're looking for something because they want an excuse to put him to death. To deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but you teach the way of God truly. They are buttering him up. This is flattery. You're a great guy, and we know that you teach out. Let's go on. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is a catch-22. This is called being between a rock and a hard place. They thought he's trapped. There's no way to answer this successfully. Because if he says, no, it's not, you shouldn't pay taxes, the strict Orthodox Jews, especially the Zealots, would say, Amen. We hate the yoke of Rome anyway. But the Herodians and the Roman soldiers listening to this message would say, Oh, he's uh, causing a little insurrection here. Well, we'll get him. And they would sweep down on him and attack. Or if he said, Yes, it is. You ought to all pay taxes to Caesar. Then you'd have the Herodians and the Romans go, Right on. I like this guy. But all the Orthodox Jews and the Zealots would say, He's a traitor. And so they were trying to divide the people. The big burning issue at the time of Jesus, one of them, was this issue of taxation. I'm not going to get into all the taxes they paid. We've done that. But the people hated the Roman taxation. Some of them. Now there were the Herodians who got favors from the Roman government, and they liked the taxation because they were recipients of the favors. So it was a hot and burning issue. Basically, in those days, kingship meant currency. That is, if you are the king, if you, if you can conquer a nation, you have the right to put your face on a coin, and you have the right, therefore, to impose taxes. You have won that right by force. They believed in the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. And they ruled with an iron fist. And 
Caesar was in charge, thus he had his head on the coin, thus he had the right, ipso facto, to collect taxes. And so it's a controversial subject. Should we pay taxes or not? Listen how Jesus skillfully answers it. Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered, Caesar's. And he said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. It's a very clear-cut thing. If you enjoy the currency produced by the Romans, even though you hate the Romans, even though being Jewish people you hate an image of anything, but you enjoy and you use the currency of Rome, it's your money, you use it, you receive the benefit of it. And if Caesar's face is on it, and he's the conquering king, then you give to him what belongs to him. In other words, yeah, you do pay taxes. You render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's something that is also under, uh, uh, undergirded in uh, Romans chapter 13. We're to obey the laws of the land. We're to pay taxes. We're to give taxes to whom taxes is due, honor to whom honor is due, tribute to whom tribute is due. Whose face is on it? Caesar's. Give it to him. But, second part, render to God the things that are God's. It was a skillfully answered question. And um, they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. This is one of the funniest, got to be, stories in the New Testament. Came to him and asked him a question. See, it's, it's like, next? <laughs> you know, he answers one question. Go, wow, that's amazing. And they're all trying their hand at trapping him. Now the Pharisees come, and they ask him a question about the resurrection. Who were the uh, Sadducees, excuse me? Who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the liberals. They believed in the five books of Moses, but they did not believe in all of the oral regulations that the Pharisees believed in. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They were the materialists of the ancient world. Um, they arose, we think, about 300 B.C. during the time of David under the priesthood of Zadok. Zadok, who was the priest during David's reign, and thus the name Tzadakim from the time of Zadok, followers of Zadok. And again, they started out well, but they disintegrated uh, they were very wealthy. They loved the Romans because the Romans put them in high positions. And uh, they were hated by the people. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they're going to pose a question to Jesus to show how ridiculous it is to believe in a resurrection. Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. What book did we just read that bore that out? Book of Ruth. The Law of the Leveret Marriage in Deuteronomy 25. Okay, that was Jewish law. Now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. The second took her as wife, and he died childless. The third took her, and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children, and they died. Last of all, the woman died also. It's a dumb story. <laughs> it is pure conjecture. It's the kind of stories that people in the abortion pro-life issues talk. Now, what if... There was a girl, and she was this, and that happened. It, it, they will take the very tiny percentile and say, now this little tiny percentile means that we should impose a law for everybody in this huge group that it would never happen to. And so, you know, couple gets married, he dies. Brother takes her, he dies. Other brother takes her, he dies. Now, after a while, wouldn't the brothers wise up? I mean, if I was brother number four or five or six, I'd say, uh-uh, uh-uh. I don't know what you're cooking. I'm not getting close to you. 
So it was pure conjecture. He says that after all, she died. Okay, now here's the question. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. If there's a resurrection, you have a problem like this. In the afterlife, which we don't believe in, in the resurrection, which we don't believe in, this is a cut against the Pharisees. Whose wife will she be? They're probably, you know, like, yeah, that's a good question. You know, laughing back and forth. Well, let's see how he answers this one. This is cool. <laughs> Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, Jesus says, basically, marriage is honorable. People in this age do marry. It was given by God. But in the afterlife, there's no need for it. There's no need to repopulate, procreate, reproduce, have families. It's a moot point in the resurrection. Now, Jesus doesn't say you're going to turn into an angel, but you're going to be like the angel. There's no need to be in that marriage relationship. Now, this bums some people out. I was a good friend of a woman in Santa Ana who begged Jesus not to come back before she had a chance to marry and have kids. And she said, you know, if Jesus comes and raptures me before I have a chance to get married, I'm going to be mad at him. I thought, man, she's got a warped concept of heaven. <laughs> the idea is that in the afterlife, there's just no need. That's what he means when he says, they shall be like the angels. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. They don't die anymore. They are equal to the angels. They are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Uh, by the way, um, the Mormons have an interesting teaching. They believe in three levels of heaven, the telestial heaven, the terrestrial heaven, and the celestial heaven. And they believe that uh, if you are a good Mormon and you have your marriage sealed in one of their temples, in the celestial marriage ritual, that you will go into the afterlife and as a god you will have children and continue your family and even be able to populate your own planet. Now, I've had Mormons who say, we don't teach that. It's simply because some of their leaders have wised up and they know it's such a ridiculous idea of repopulating your own planet and being as a god that they've sought to hide it. But it is in their literature. It's in their own books, their own scriptures. But this idea of the sealed celestial marriage and you continue having offspring is this scripture negates that whole idea. You neither marry nor are given in marriage. You're sons of the resurrection. Verse 37, now, even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. By the way, if you're wondering if the scholars and the critics are right, did Moses really write the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus? And there's a whole group of scholars all around the country who think they're smarter than Jesus and everybody else and say, Moses really didn't write them. And uh, Jesus said Moses did. Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. You see what he's doing here? He says, okay, this idea of marriage, let's get this out of the way. Now, let me tell you about the resurrection. You guys don't believe in it? Do you remember back in the burning bush passage when Moses and God are having a conversation and God says, I am the God of Abraham, not I was, now, Abraham has been dead for a long time in that passage. And so is Isaac, and so is Jacob. But God spoke to Moses in the present tense. If the dead do not live again after death, then God was wrong in the way he framed his response to Moses. I am the God of Abraham. In other words, in some state, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live before God. Jesus said he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he put a lid on that question of the resurrection by that answer. And then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. Why? Because they were Pharisees and they believed in the resurrection. And after that, they dared not question him anymore. <laughs> they learned the lesson. 
And he said to them, Now here's a question from Jesus. How can they say that Christ is David's son? All of the rabbis spoke of the Messiah, the Christ, as the son of David because of the prophecies that David's offspring would sit upon the throne and have an everlasting kingdom. Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David therefore calls him Lord. How then is he his son? Now, they didn't answer that. You have to compare the other Gospels. They didn't answer it. They just went on. I wish they would have answered. I wish they would have thought it through because there's only one suitable explanation that the Messiah must be flesh, but he must also be deity. Because the Lord said to my Lord, how can he be David's son and be his Lord at the same time? By being fully divine and fully human, by being born of a virgin. Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who love to walk in long robes, love the greetings in the marketplaces, love the best seats in the synagogues, love the best places at feasts. They devour widows' houses, and for a pretense they make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. Now he just hammers these guys. He's had enough of their question. He tells the people, these guys are like snakes. Beware of them. Oh, they love the hoopla. They love to be called rabbi, doctor, reverend, most holy, righteous one. They love all that. They love all of the parading around in their robes in the show. Beware of them. Watch out for them. It's all, they're all in it for the show. He said they devour his widows' houses, and for a pretense, they make long prayers. I love Jesus' responses. They're not canned. They're classic. They're to the heart. He doesn't dance with them. He gives it to them straight. He's honest. Don't you love that about Jesus? He was always honest. He always told the truth. He didn't say, well, you know, Sadducees, there's some people who believe in the resurrection. Some don't. I don't want to be dogmatic, but... He simply used the scripture and said he's the God of the, not of the dead, but of the living. Jesus is always honest. He will always be honest with you. He tells you he's the way, the truth, the life. He tells you that there's no hope beside him. He has told all men, frankly, in his word, that no one will get to heaven unless they come through him. Why would Jesus be so dogmatic? Because he loves you. He loves you enough to tell you the truth. He loves you enough to invite you to come through that narrow way. It's too difficult. No, it's not. He's paid the price. He's done all the hard work. All you have to do is receive him. Let him change your life. Let him make that covenant with you. If you haven't done that, let's do it tonight. Father, we come. We rest our hearts now before you. So many issues we've uncovered. We think of that day of Jesus and Solomon's porch on the Temple Mount having that confrontation with so many of his enemies. And at the same time, trying to teach his disciples in the little time that he had left to train them to beware of the charlatans and the snakes, those who pretended to be righteous. We thank you, Lord, for his clarity and his honesty. We thank you that Jesus loves us enough to tell us the truth and to call us in truth to himself. Not only does he speak the truth and promise things clearly, he is able to fulfill that which he promises. And we thank you, Lord, for every one of us tonight who are here who have received Jesus Christ. We have had our sins forgiven. We have been changed. We have been set free. You keep your promises. You've given abundant life. And the offer is still out. And Lord, if there are those tonight who are among us in this place who have not surrendered, 
trusted in Jesus to forgive them of their sins, to cleanse them from their past, to give them eternal life, I pray that in this moment they will surrender and give their hearts back to you. Before we sing a final song as we're in an attitude of prayer, if you have come tonight and you are unsure about your relationship with God or you are sure that you are not right with God, if you know that you are apart from him, and tonight you want, you'd love to leave knowing that all is forgiven. You'd love to walk away knowing that there's no guilt laid against you, nothing charged against you in your account, that you're free, that God has set you free.